Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. We got a uh, special guest in today, uh, come from the East Coast, New York area, Long Island. Um, what's cool is that this individual, he practices what he preached. I mean, he's a CPA at, at Nature, but really focusing on actually developing the foundation, keeping up with bookkeeping, making sure that you have your tax strategies and filings and and preparation as a real estate professional all dialed in and in order and the advanced stuff as you really start to grow and scale your business. And what I meant by, you know, practice what he preach, he's done a bunch of deals as well and put together, you know, an 18 unit syndication as well in the past and you know, out there looking to serve today and, and add more value to you guys. So um, this is something that a lot of brand new real estate investors really put on the back burner for many reasons. And as they start growing and scaling, you know, sometimes you get into that rat race of just running and running, running and building and growing without actually focusing on the stuff that really matters and the important stuff of like getting that foundation, the ground level so that you can grow and scale without all the frustrating factors that can come into play when you got to go into crazy bookkeeping or tax filings and you're paying too much in taxes. You're trying to avoid certain things, but doing it not up to code. So you don't want to be going backtracking and all the stress behind that. So today, Thomas is going to be able to dive into that, speak life into it, and really be able to serve you guys to a better ability. So Thomas, what's up, man? How are we doing today? I'm doing all right. Um, everything's going pretty well. It's a pretty nice day out, so can't complain. How's everything with you? It's good, man. Yeah, sunny San Diego over here. But I'm from New Jersey originally, so so I, I know that the weather's been up and down over there lately and everything. So hopefully you're enjoying the summer. But talk to me, you know, for anybody out there that doesn't know who you are, what you do, where you're from and so forth, do you mind giving that, you know, 30,000 foot view? Yeah, absolutely. So like like you mentioned before, my name is Thomas Castelli. I'm a CPA. I'm a tax strategist. So what I do is I help real estate investors keep more of their hard-earned dollars in their pockets and out of the government's pockets uh, through proactive tax strategy and planning. So uh, throughout my career, I've been able to work with hundreds of investors and in, in aggregate, save them millions of dollars in taxes. So it's been uh, super exciting. Anything from small single family rentals all the way up to the big, you know, multifamily stuff. I've had the experience and I've been fortunate enough to work on that type of stuff. So that's been awesome. And on the investing side, I was part of a syndication and we took that full cycle. And now I just focus on the LP side. So I invest passively in syndicates and funds so I can stay focused at this point in my life on the CPA firm and, and, and helping people reduce taxes. I love it, man. Yeah. When you find your passion and everybody should be investing in real estate one way or the other, but there's ways that you can do it passively, still get an incredible return, get the tax benefits, uh, as you are well aware and how to really take advantage of this while serving more people with that's obviously what you're passionate about. So, um, you know, what we're talking about here today, this is all morally, ethically, uh, legally, like all responsible ways that the government has really set us up 
uh, to be able to take advantage of this. And really, uh, let's let's be honest here. Um, for the longest time, it's it's really only the rich that understand it. The top one percenters right. are understanding this, and a lot of the you know mom and pops that are starting to try to get going, they really don't know about some of these techniques. Correct? Right. Right. So you know, when you've grown up in school, there's there's really no there's really no education on taxes. Everybody knows that it's almost a cliche at this point. Um, but in the reality is even when you take taxes in college, even if you become an accountant, there's a lot of classes and stuff that prepare you to like prepare a tax return as a professional, but no one really ever kind of dives deep into like, okay, here's the laws. How can you use these laws to minimize taxes or, you know, put yourself in a position where, you know, you're, you're taking a tax code to the advantage. So you're not paying you know, tax at 37% tax bracket on all your income. And no one really ever helps with that. So uh, kind of what I do is I help people navigate those laws, those rules, and create a plan for them to help them pretty much minimize taxes as they go along. So what are some of the ways that you're doing this? Right, right. So uh, yeah, that's a great question. So there's a handful. I know, of- it's a, I know it's a broad question at the same time. Yeah. So by all means, like wherever you want to jump into that low level or, you know, for some of recent case, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me start here because I think this is an important foundation for everybody to kind of understand kind of the 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 playing field and then kind of dive into some strategies from there. So um, many people are familiar with earned income as income you have from a job or perhaps an active trader business that you're running or you're involved in. Uh, that's taxed at ordinary income rates. They call it uh, up to thirty seven percent, and it's very it's the most stubborn type of income. With business income, you can kind of have some deductions for business expenses, and there's some perks from being a business owner, no doubt. But when it comes down to that net number, it's it's very hard. It's very challenging to get that net number down. Now, on the flip side, you have passive income, right? And passive income is the type of income you could earn from real estate or you can generate, rather, I would say, from real estate investments. Now, the good thing about rental real estate is there's a there's an expense, a non-cash expense called depreciation. Now, what depreciation does is it reduces your taxable rental income. And in some cases, your other income, we'll get into that but it reduces your taxable rental income despite the fact that you might be generating positive cash flow. So the example, a quick example I can give of that is let's just say you were generating $10,000 in rental income from a property. You had $5,000 of hard expenses. And by hard expenses, I mean like property taxes, utilities, maintenance, all that stuff, money that you have to pay somebody else to lose your pocket. Now you'd be left with $5,000 of net income. Now in most businesses, you're going to pay tax on that $5,000 in that income. And depending on what tax bracket you're in, you pay up to that 37% rate that I was mentioning before. But with real estate, there's this non-cash expense, the depreciation expense, which can basically like the way to describe it would be, let's say you have a $6,000 depreciation expense, very realistic. So going back to our scenario here, you have $10,000 of rental income, you have $5,000 of part expenses. So you're left with $5,000 of cash flow. Now you enter the $6,000 depreciation expense, and now you're at a $1,000 taxable loss. So the first thing to set people up with, especially if you're new to this world, is just understand that if you're investing in real estate, you're already putting yourself in a tax advantage position because of this depreciation expense. So before I get into some of the more complex stuff, because what ends up happening is people get more like enamored by the complex strategies and overlook the benefit that, hey, look, if you're just investing in rental real estate and you're taking advantage of that depreciation expense, then you're already putting yourself in a tax favored position. Because what happens is over time, as you accumulate more and more properties, as you scale your portfolio, you're going to increase the cash flow that you're generating, presumably, from the portfolio. And that's going to, for all intents and purposes, call it income, right? It's going to increase your income, but not your taxes. 
just say, for example, you had a $100,000 job. I'm just throwing a number out there, right? And you paid, let's just say, $20,000 of taxes on that $100,000 job. That would mean your effective tax rate is 20%, 20 divided by 100, right? But now let's say that you have $50,000 in rental income that's sheltered by depreciation that you put in your pocket, quote unquote, tax free. But now you're still paying that, say, $20,000 of income, of tax rather, but now you're generating $150,000 of income. So now your effective tax rate is 13.3%. So you're, in a sense, by taking money from an earned income source and putting into real estate, you're reducing your effective tax rate and, in a sense, reducing your taxes. So that's the first thing to understand. Just by investing in rental real estate, you're already putting yourself in a tax advantage position. So depreciation alone is like why everybody and their grandmother should invest in real estate just to begin with. And if it's residential, depreciation is, you know, for easy terms behind this, the government says within, you know, for residential four units and under, that's 27.5 years, whatever you paid for that property in that amount of time, you're going to have to basically spend that much again to be able to replace everything. So right, therefore, there's strategies with cost segregation and so forth that you can fast forward and actually write it all off in the first, well, seven years of it all within the first year instead of over 27.5 and over 15 and so forth, correct? Yes. So basically, you kind of long story short, and we're not going to spend too much time on cost seg here. But I mean, what it does, though, is it, it to, your, to your point, when you have a residential property, 27 and a half years. There's different components in that property, though. It's not just the structure. It's just not the beams and everything like that. Everything, right? Yeah. yeah. You're going to have yeah, you're gonna have carpeting. You're going to have appliances. You're going to have land improvements. That's so the carpeting, the five-year property, they call it. That's tangible personal property. It's going to be composed, uh, a portion of the property that's going to be considered that five-year. Then you're going to have land improvements. That's 15-year property. And that's things like sheds, decks, pools, things of that nature. Now, there's another category, seven-year, which is like, basically unidentified. They just don't know where else to put it. So they'll put it in yeah. seven years. You don't see it that much that often. You see it occasionally, but it's not that common. But anyway, you will have those classes of properties. And now that will shorten your depreciation schedule on those assets to five years. Now, there's something called double declining balance, which accelerates that even more. So it's like, it's even faster than just straight line. Like for straight lines, if you just divided like the property's value by 27.5 with double declining balance, it long story short, it's not over five years or 15 years. It kind of accelerates it even more. But then there's something called bonus depreciation, which is really powerful these days, which allows you to significantly or rapidly accelerate that five, seven and 15 year property. This year in 2023, when we're recording this, this is it's 80%. So Usually somewhere between 20 to 30% of a property's value can be reallocated to that five, seven, 15 year property. So in, in aggregate, right? So last year it was 100%. This year it's going to be 80%. And then it's going to drop. Is it dropping by 20 each year until it's gone? Yeah. So it's, it's dropping 20% per year until 2026. So in other words, it's not available in 2027 under current law. Some people think it will be extended, but there's no guarantees. There's no way to yeah. know in the future. There's actually a bill right now, the tax, uh, the Make It in America Act, it's called, and it's yet to be voted on. But in that bill, they want to extend 100% bonus depreciation out from basically 2023 through 2026. So it's as if there's no step down, no 20% step down. Whether or not that passes or not, we'll, we'll see. But yeah, wow. right now, it steps down 20% per year. 
Okay, so the bonus is something that somebody should take advantage of, obviously, while it's still available. Last year, I took advantage of several of my properties, got the 100%, which was a blessing. I think we wrote off like 1.2 million, which is incredible. But this year, guys, it's 80%. Take advantage of it while you can. Each year, it's going to drop 20% more. So take advantage of the bonus, obviously. And you said the other one is double... I'm sorry, what was it? It's a double declining balance. So basically, uh, it's getting too technical into the weeds here. But basically, there's under the depreciation system, the macros depreciation system, they call it. Five-year property, for example, is is depreciated over. It's not quite depreciated. It's not one divided by five. Right? You're not you're not dividing one fifth every year. There's a formula where basically you're depreciating a hundred. You're depreciating 150 percent for a certain period of time. So in the earlier years of that five years, you're going to have slightly higher depreciation. But like gotcha. it, that largely has been irrelevant though over the last few years, um, simply because of bonus depreciation. People just take the bonus depreciation and just. Oh, you can't double dip into both. Well, with 80% bonus depreciation, what ends up happening is that remaining 20% is going to be depreciated over that schedule. So like it would be depreciated over that five-year double declining balance schedule. So that's when it starts to become relevant. But you know, for the last five years before this year, really people didn't matter. So So in the next coming years, that's going to become more of a common thing because there's more of a gap now. Right. More of a spread. Gotcha. Right. And then now this is the 27.5 and even the cost segregation, the faster years and kind of forcing this, that's for residential four units and under, but you can do this with commercial as well. And it's over what, 40 years, five so units and above. Yeah. So interestingly, so well, for uh, as far as the task code concerned, like residential could be a multifamily building that's like 40 or 50 or a thousand units. The commercial side is over 39 years. That's like office buildings, industrial things of that nature. So I know in the brokerage world, five plus units is considered commercial. Like, so if you have a five plus unit multifamily property, then yeah, they consider that commercial. But like in the tax world, if it's like a residential building, it's residential. It's 27 and a half years regardless of its size, which is interesting. So I guess like individual four units or something, or maybe even a sixplex, and then there's a bunch of them kind of compound around each other, that would still be considered residential or the 27.5? Right, right. As far as the tax code is concerned. Yeah. Wow. What if it was all in one building, a hundred unit building? Still, still 27 and a half years. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, there's benefits behind that. Okay, cool. So talk to me more about the foundation. Actually, for a second, if you don't mind, what is the most common thing that you see people forget to do or lack and kind of set themselves up with a little bit of a struggle down the road? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It's hard to pinpoint just one. I'm trying to think of the best one to put, yeah, the best one to put forward here. Probably, probably the first thing they don't do is they don't do bookkeeping. And I, I know I'll probably get into this a little bit later, but it seems like it's such a small thing. But what ends up happening is a lot of people, you get to the end of the year. And they've not done their books. So they have no idea how their property is performing. So it'll be like, you're asking, you know, what return do you have on your property? Oh, I have no idea because they haven't been keeping their books, right? Second thing too is like, we'll get people come to us for tax planning in like November and they'll be like, okay, how much property do I need to buy to reduce my tax liability? Or what do I need to do to minimize my taxes? Well, okay, what's your profit and loss for the year? I have no idea. Well, then it's very challenging to advise you on what to do. So the bookkeeping is, is critical for not only you understanding the performance of your property and as it goes on of your aggregate portfolio, 
but it also hard to make decisions come tax time in terms of what can you do to reduce your taxes. And then, you know, on top of that, if you go to your CPA or you go to a tax professional, whoever's preparing your taxes and you drop the proverbial shoebox, or I guess now Google folder, whatever the case might be of documents on them, they're going to have to go and create your P&L for you. And it's not always going to be the most accurate or beautiful thing because they're doing it in arrears. They don't have all the information that's currently going on. And it's going to cost you more money to get your taxes done. So while it does sound like a very tedious and almost like minutia type of task, getting your books in order, whether you're doing it, you have an office manager doing it, you outsource it to somebody, it's critical that you stay on top of that for the performance of your business. Yeah, that makes sense. I know for the very longest time, I slacked on my bookkeeping as well. And you just get into the routine and, and constantly you know, growing, right? And, right? and then I'm in the credit space. So we got a stack of different cards. And that can be very frustrating on the bookkeeping, on how to stay organized and what's getting paid for what, right? So yeah, I think that's a great key point for people to really focus on you know, the, the bookkeeping, obviously. What else? You know, when it comes down to the tax you know, basic foundation, what else can people really start preparing for before it becomes more of a hassle? Right. So entity structuring, believe it or not, entity structuring is another big one. First thing I'll say on entity structuring is primarily for primarily for like asset protection and legal purposes more so than it is taxes. But if you get the wrong entity structure in place, it could cause tax problems down the line. So for example, sometimes we'll see clients or investors in general put rental property in an S corporation. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that. But what ends up happening is when you need to remove a property from an S corporation, it's treated as a sale at fair market value. So let's say today is 2023, right? We put a rental property in S corporation. We bought it for 500K. Let's just keep it, keep it, keep it easy here. Now let's say 20 years goes by, and I've seen this happen before. And let's say now this property is worth, I don't know, two million. It just rapidly just, you know, had a nice pop in depreciation in appreciation. So now you have a $1.5 million gain. You're not taking to the depreciation recapture, which is a whole other aspect of it, but you have a $1.5 million gain. And you don't want to sell the property. You just need to restructure. You go to your attorney and they're like, hey, look, you know, or maybe you're refinancing the property and you have other rental properties in that S corporation too. And the bank's like, look, we'll refi that property for you, but we need that property in a single, basically an SPV, right? Uh, one, you know, one property for that, one entity with just that property in it. Yeah. So now you need to remove the property from the S corporation. Now that's going to trigger a sale. So now here you are, you're simply just moving that property from one entity you own into another entity you own. And now you're going to be hit with a $1.5 million capital gain. It's just paperwork, basically. You know, it's paperwork of staying organized, keeping that one property out of all these other properties in that one entity. And now you're going to end up getting penalized with, you know, as if you made all that money. (laughs) Right, right. And the thing is, not only did you not make the $1.5 million capital gain, right, but now you're going to have tax on it and where you have to have the money for that. And we've seen that before. And there's plenty of other reasons why you might need to restructure, like maybe for estate planning, or maybe there's some kind of issue with your asset protection, you're working with your attorney, whatever the case may be, that's something you want to get out of the way. So if you have, like, I know when I say this, sometimes people start panicking, oh my God, I have a property and S corporation, what do I do? Nothing inherently wrong with that. Again, just the downside is in the future, you might end up getting yourself into this issue. So for the most part, generally speaking, again, I'm not an attorney, I can't give legal advice, but the appropriate entity structure tends to be like, if, if you're going to be the sole owner, it's going to be an LLC disregarded for tax purposes, 
or if you're going to have partners, it's going to be a partnership. Uh, it's going to be a multi-member LLC taxed like a partnership. Those are the most appropriate types of entities for the most part, because you're able to take the properties in and out relatively painlessly. And whenever restructuring, if and when restructuring does come about for you. So that's probably another thing to get kind of solidified sooner rather than later. Not only that, but just the cost of like if you get the entity structure wrong, just the cost of having to go back later on, all the paperwork, the headaches and everything, just trying to restructure. So getting that right up front, probably it, sooner rather than later is, 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 is a foundational step for sure. So individual LLC for each of the properties, ideally, if you have a partner, then have a multi-member LLC on there, you know, tax as a partnership. And then as you start building and getting more and more properties, then obviously you want to actually instead of you being the individual owning these LLCs, you actually want to put probably a holding company owning these LLCs. So then it's easy to kind of move things out, plus keeps you more hidden and protected, right? Right. We see a lot of people do that too. Like you'll have the one holding LLC and that traditionally is a partnership. It's traditionally an LLC tax, like a partnership. Someone will usually the way the attorneys will set it up is have someone own 1% to make it a partnership because theoretically that gives you better Legal protection, again, I can't speak on that, but that's theoretically how it works. And then from there, you'd have like the LLCs below it that would own a bunch of LLCs that own various properties. Having said that, I have seen plenty of holding companies at the top that are just a disregarded entity. So that works too. The the key there is just want to avoid the S corporation because if the S corporation is the holding company, well, then you're in the same situation I just described before. So either, yeah, that the holding company structure completely valid. A lot of people use that. Yeah. Now, this is kind of a random question, but I've seen this a few times recently of people doing this, using their name as the LLC, you know, like Brandon Elliott LLC. And obviously that exposes the individual's name. So it's very easy for the lawyer that's going after to sue to look up things and, you know, potentially make the lawsuit a little bit easier on their job, I guess. But is there benefits to actually, you know, because instead of using my social for certain things down the road, I could actually use the EIN, which is the same nine digit number, and it still matches apples to apples in in a different form, I guess. Yes, absolutely. The more and more experience I get, like the more and more I realize like, hey, it's not a good idea to put the property address as the name of the LLC. It's not the best idea to put your name uh, you do want some form of anonymity, so you can just name it, you know, whatever you want, as long as you know not blatant what it is, and that's going to serve you. And the EIN too, the EIN to protect your social security number and everything like that. Now, I'm not going to go de- too far down this rabbit hole because I'm not an expert in this area. But if you're looking for anonymity, anonymity, if I'm spelling that, if I'm pronouncing that the right way, like land trust things like that, that's a great way to do it. And establishing your LLC in certain states, like. Wyoming, for example, is a very popular state. Doesn't require you to like have your name on the LLC too, so it like really insulates you from potential liability down the road if if someone wants to sue you and their attorney is looking for all your looking for all your assets and they can't find anything because the trail is just not there. That's an important aspect of entity structuring too. Sure. Yeah. So states like Nevada, Delaware, and Wyoming are great for that protection basically because they don't report it out publicly of the ownership and so forth. So there's a lot of protection. So those are more of the common states that you may want to focus on setting up your entity structure. But obviously, giving legal advice, you get your own due diligence out there and figure it out or talk to your lawyer about it. But 
Cool, man. I love that. So talk to me about some, we already talked a little bit about some high level stuff, advanced stuff, but I'm sure you got some other tricks up your sleeve of what you're doing with certain things that are going on recently with changes and so forth. So what would you say for the high level individual that has their bookkeeping in order, has the foundation, they know how to structure their entities. They have dozens and dozens of properties and just something that they may not know to be able to take advantage of to save more and really capitalize on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest one for real estate investors is probably the real estate professional status. So we go back to the example from before with that $1,000 loss, right? So you didn't pay tax on your rental income, but now you have this $1,000 loss. Well, in most cases, for many investors, that loss is going to not be able to offset. Like say, say you're a high income earner, you have a separate job or trader business that you're running that generates a significant amount of earned income. Yeah. Well, that $1,000 of loss typically isn't going to be able to offset or help you reduce taxes on your earned income. It's going to be suspended and carried forward to future years. They can help you offset future passive income, such as the income you're generating from your rentals. But what the real estate professional status allows you to do is qualify. And I'll get into the qualifications in a second. It allows you to take the losses from your rental properties and use them to offset income from a job or a, a business that you're running. And when you combine that with, say, bonus depreciation and cost segregation studies, which I know we talked about before, that can be quite powerful, right? Like, to kind of give a quick illustration, and I'll get into the requirements because I don't want people to run out and and, yeah. and get confused on how to use this. But let's just say that you bought this five hundred thousand dollar hypothetical property. Well, land is never depreciated. There's always has to be a portion of value of value to land. So let's just say that it's twenty percent. So that means that the building, the structure, all that good stuff. Is 400K. That's how much that's worth. Well, now anywhere between 20 to 30% of that can be reallocated to that five, seven, 15 year property we discussed before. So let's just say that it's 25% right down the middle. So that's 100K, $100,000. Now we're going to take 80% bonus depreciation on that. And we're going to get an $80,000 loss. So now if you were to do all this, great, you're going to have this $80,000, well, excuse me, depreciation expense. This is likely when you combine it with all your other expenses and subtract it from your rental income is going to create a sizable loss. And that's what happens in many cases. So if you're not a real estate professional, it's going to be suspended and carried forward. You can't use it today. And we don't prefer to use it today. So let's just say you're at the 37% tax bracket, you're a high income earner. That If you were able to use that loss today, that's going to save you roughly 29600 bucks. It's not chump change. Now, if you had a million dollar property, you know, you're doubling this, right? So that's what the real estate professional status allows you to do. To qualify for the real estate professional status, you need to work 750 hours or more than 750 hours and more than half of your total working time in a real property trader business. And that more than half your total working time is the challenge for a lot of people. So if you have a full-time job, you have a full-time W-2 job, you're working in it out doing whatever you're doing, you're most likely not going to be able to qualify for the status. There's like dozens and dozens of tax court cases of people trying to qualify and it just doesn't work. I'll work in their nine to five and have pay subs coming in and it's like, but how can you work 40 hours there and then still, right. yeah. Right, right. Because the IRS, they consider a full-time job to be you know, roughly uh, 2,080 hours per year, 40 hours per week. So to spend yep. more than half your total working time would mean, you know, at least in the eyes of the IRS, would be that you have to spend 2,081 hours in a real property shared business, which means you're working 81 hours per week per, for the entire year. And they know that that's virtually impossible to do. And it's been proven virtually impossible many times. So 
All this to say that if you have a W-2 job, you're unlikely to qualify for this test, but there's a saving grace here. I'm not going to leave everybody hanging. Okay. If you're married, you file a joint return. You can have a spouse, say your sp- maybe spouse A is earning a high income. Maybe they're a doctor, lawyer, tech, maybe they're in real estate, whatever the case is. I mean, like not real estate, because they would be the real estate professional, but whatever the case is, they're earning a lot of money. And then you have spouse B, who's maybe a full-time real estate professional. Maybe they happen to work in a real property share business, or perhaps they work part-time, or maybe they don't work at all, but they can get involved in managing your portfolio and get involved in real estate to meet these requirements. Well, now, because you file a joint return, both spouses get to benefit from this status. So basically, long story short, if you have a full-time job, but your spouse can qualify, you can go ahead and take advantage of this status here. Or if you work in real estate full-time yourself, then you can take advantage of this stuff. Great. And so 750 hours per year, is that what that is? Yes, per year. Okay. Yes. I mean, that's less than half, right? I mean, because 2080 is what, I guess, for 40 hours a week for the 52. So I mean, yeah. that that's really not that bad at the end of the day. Yeah, that's about 15 hours per week. So that's not the worst part of the requirement. The hard part of the requirement is it's more than 750 hours and more than half your total working time. So then that's that's the second part what catches a lot of people because you know spending 15 hours per week on average, you know, or 750 hours per year is not that challenging to do. It's the, okay if you have a full-time job, you're running another yeah. business. It's if you're working other businesses or other side gigs and you got track records of that, like how are you supposed to explain that you are a real estate business professional, you know, right. working all these hours? It's very hard to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool, man. I love it. Anything else that you would recommend to somebody either just getting started or, or maybe somebody that's more of the expert real estate investor that might be missing, you know, something along the lines to really prepare their bookkeeping and tax planning strategies? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, if you're more advanced out there, I think what we covered today are some of the bigger ones that you want to look at. But then when it comes to exiting properties is probably where you'll find some additional strategies because real estate is really one of the most tax advantage asset classes for all the reasons we discussed so far. But also when it comes time to sell the property, you can defer the capital gain, right? So for the sake of simplicity, let's just say you had a $1.5 million property and then you bought for 1 million bucks. Now you have a $500,000 gain. Well, you can defer that entire $500,000 gain by using the sales proceeds, the entire sales proceeds from that sale to buy another property within a certain period of time. It's and that's six months with a 1031 tax right. exchange. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. 180 days from the sale of the property. If, if you follow their exchange procedures, there's some other nuances in there. But if you follow that, you can basically buy a replacement property. Um, and defer your entire capital gain, keep your money moving. And now before selling that, I think prior about a month or so, you actually need to identify three properties that you're going to take down one of those within the six months, right? Right. So you have from the date of sale, the first 45 days, the first 45 days from the date of sale, you have to identify three properties to close on one of them within 180 days. And that 180 days from the day of sale includes the 45 days. So the 45 days is part of that 180 day window. But if you can get that done and people get it done all the time, then you can just continue to build this massive portfolio without paying taxes on it. I think it's such an incredible strategy. I've heard certain pieces that may be going away or they're trying to get that to be removed. Have you heard anything along those lines? 
Yeah, so the 1031 exchange has been on a chopping block many, many times. And basically, they've already kind of whittled it down. So you used to be able to 1031 exchange a lot of different assets. You used to be able to 1031 exchange cars, vehicles, equipment, things like that. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 cut it down to just real estate. So they already kind of nerfed it. That said, it's still being talked about on the chopping block from time to time. But um, from my understanding, all the studies they've done is they realize that when push comes to shove, that there's a lot of downsides to actually cutting the 1031 exchange. First, you would just be killing the entire 1031 exchange industry, all the jobs, everything that, that goes on with that. And they found basically, long story short, that doing that would they lose more tax revenue doing that than they would by actually getting rid of the 1031 exchange itself. So I think yeah. <laughs> and then on top of that, you'd have implications in the marketplace too, because then you'd have people with all these big properties with these massive gains that they have not sold, they would maybe not sell. And now you have issues in the marketplace as well from that ramification. So it's been on the chopping block, but I would say it's unlikely. You never know, but it's unlikely that they're actually going to mix it. Now, you said there's certain professionals. Do you need to go with a certain company or, or a certain type of professional to help you with that 1031 process? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's something called a qualified intermediary. Qualified intermediary, they basically hold your money effectively in escrow like in that 180-day window between the time you sell your property and the time you, you buy the new one. So if you're contemplating a 1031 exchange, you're going to want to get with the CPA, just kind of get an idea of what's going on tax-wise for you. You can make a determination what to do. But then you're going to want to contact a qualified intermediary. Because what happens is at the closing table, you take the check. If you take possession of that of the sales proceeds, then the 10, you can no longer do a 1031 exchange. So literally at the closing table, the 1031 exchange qualified intermediary, they need to take possession of those sales proceeds. At the closing table, you want to hold on to. So you want to talk. So to answer your question, qualified into intermediaries who needs to help you facilitate the transaction. You want to get in touch with them at some point during the sales process before you close. Basically, yeah, that makes sense. And what if you don't? And I know this is probably a question for them, but with your expertise, what if you don't? You know, the the three that you identify to close on, what if those fall through? It, it doesn't count as a 1031 anymore, right? Even if you find another one that you could kind of replace? Yeah, generally speaking, once that 45-day window goes by, if you don't close on one of the properties you identify, the 1031 exchange fails and you're stuck holding. It's as if you sold the property in a regular sure. sale. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Love it. Well, Thomas, you are a wealth of knowledge. I'm, I'm excited just to be able to get this information out there to people. I, just like you said, you know, uh, so many people actually really put this on the back burner for too long. And it's something so crucial, something that you're passionate about and very well educated on. So I appreciate your time today. Anything that myself or the listeners could do to give back to you? Right now, I, there's nothing off off the top of my head that you can do to get back or anything like that. I, I love coming on shows like this and, and sharing my knowledge with everybody. If you know if you want to you learn more, you know, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, Thomas Costelli. We have a Facebook group where we have conversations like this going on about taxes called Tax Smart Investors. I like to search that on Facebook. But I mean, that's probably the best next step from here. Other than other than that, nothing really you know, I can say to get back. So Love it, man. Well, yeah, guys, definitely want to reach out to Thomas. Wealth of knowledge. He can definitely point you in the right direction. Worst case scenario, have some conversations and guide you and kind of help you planning out your REI 
tax planning and strategy. So love this episode, really thankful for it. And by all means, guys, reach out to Thomas. If you guys want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments. Check us out on Instagram as well, Credit Council Elite. Otherwise, facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you guys want to get a hold of, really learn how the hell we are getting up to $500,000 every six months at 0% interest, the 0% interest to clarify is anywhere from six months to 22 months. So it allows you to do the birth strategy, diversify, grow, scale, start something new, get a little bit more risque while you are growing and scaling and putting the money to work, be a lender and so forth and so much more. Make sure you check out creditcounselelite.com. That's www.creditcounselelite.com. There's a quick 10, 15 minute video on there and, and afterwards that will explain a lot, but you'll definitely have some questions. So you can jump on a call with us to get a second opinion and really understand a little bit more of what we can do and, and how we can help you hit your goals sooner than later. So with that being said, make sure you hit that subscribe button for Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. You'll get the newest episode every single Monday. Leave that five-star review and we'll see you next time, guys. Appreciate it, Thomas. You're the man. Appreciate you guys. Thanks. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit brandonelliotinvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.